Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. to take to oil and gas and uh, and capital markets in 10 minutes and then uh, we're going to talk about software but we're going to vector over back towards chips but uh, let me let me try to get the oil and gas and capital market stuff out in the next 10 minutes one of the remarkable things that's happened in the past several months is the price of LNG liquid natural gas went to uh, $30 in China and Korea and Japan, and then went to $30 in Europe. And $30 is a lot. I mean, the BTO equivalency is six to one. So $30 uh, per MCF uh, LNG is equivalent to $180 oil. So it's really kind of, it has to be panic buying. And it's happening, you know, kind of before the winter. So it's not like a cold weather spike in January. This started to happen in August and September. One of the issues was, were the Russians holding back gas that they'd otherwise bring to Europe and put in storage fields because they weren't getting their Nordstrom 2 pipeline, which brings gas from Russia under underwater in the Baltic and into Germany. An awful lot of the Russian gas runs through the Ukraine, and they don't like that very much because relations with the Ukraine are strained for all kinds of reasons. And Ukrainians can, you know, draft off the pipeline this winter if they need gas and not pay the Russians for it. So the Russians wanted more stable ways to get their gas to Western Europe. It looked as though the reason they were slow to fill up storage that they leased in Europe was they wanted to accelerate the approval of the Nordstrom 2 pipeline, which is completed, and it's up to German regulators. Well, in the papers this morning, the German regulators have basically said that they that the way Gazprom, the Russian gas company, is holding the pipeline is not acceptable and has said that they're putting their certification process on hold until they get better answers out of Gazprom. Kind of extraordinary. I suspect what's happened is that they want to have the operation of the pipeline, the whole pipeline, be governed under German laws, and the, and and Gazprom and the Russian government is resisting that. So, you know, I don't know how that gets resolved. But if I were a consumer of gas in Europe, I'd be a bit spooked because a third of the gas consumed in Europe on a year-round basis comes from Russia. And they, you know, they were already slow to add gas to storage fields. In since gas is so seasonal, uh, because it's used for winter heating and whatnot, whether it's the U.S. or Europe, you have to fill up the storage before the winter starts. Otherwise, you know, you're you're going to get in situations in the winter where the amount of flowing gas can't possibly satisfy the demand. You have to have those storage fields filled up. So we'll see more in the next uh, week or so. Really, kind of a 
very difficult situation for the European Union. Let's hear what happened in China. There, apparently, in order to try to comply with climate initiatives, the Chinese were closing coal mines. And, of course, they have this embargo on Australian coal, both med coal and thermal coal. And so the coal stockpiles in China for thermal coal had gotten quite low uh, rather than building over the summer and the fall. And the utilities, which are controlled or run by provinces, the, the Chinese equivalent to our states, typically are in control of how the utilities run, they were uh, getting squeezed where their price that they could charge for power is mandated and the price of coal, the internal price of coal was going up so that every day they operated, they'd lose money. Well, when that happens, I mean, that, that's, you know, kind of a centrally planned economy rather than market economy. A lot of utilities, executives, provinces or whatnot decided, hey, we have a problem with our facility. We have to take it down for maintenance and whatnot. So all of a sudden, the Chinese economy was was quite short power, such that even factories like Foxconn, where they make the iPhones, are having to operate, you know, rather than operate 24 hours a day, they're having to operate like three or four days a week and maybe not operate during the day, try to operate at night to try to balance power, which, you know, is an impossible situation. So even though Glasgow was coming up, the Chinese immediately said, it's the patriotic duty of the industry to produce more coal. A lot of the closed coal mines, you know, were reopened. Lots of publicity of these heroic workers going back into the coal mines to increase the coal supply for this winter. Maybe even some leakage uh, happening from the uh, uh, embargo on Australian coal, both thermal and net. Now, in this country, because the price of natural gas has been $5, and even out two years, it's still three fifty. dollars uh, there's been a huge increase in demand for coal, and a lot of coal plants have been closed. A lot of coal mines have been closed. So Illinois Basin Coal, which would have sold for $30, you know, for a year or two years' supply of coal, is now trading for $70. So the utilities in this country, having watched what happened in, in Texas in those five days, uh, are totally spooked, such that even though they're saying that they're going to be net zero by such and such a date. They're basically trying to buy every piece of coal they can so that they can meet power demands in the winter. Interestingly enough, Beto O'Rourke, who, who you know had a pretty unsuccessful run for the presidential nomination, a Democrat who was in Congress from Amarillo, is now challenging the governor, Republican governor of, uh, of Texas. And first thing, Beto O'Rourke to beat up on is how the governor let those five days happen in uh, in February. It, it amazed me that he seemed to slide through that. I mean, he, he fired the PUC commissioners and he fired the ERCOT people. Well, he didn't take too much blame himself. I think that O'Rourke, who's at, you know, I, I, I doubt if he can beat a, a sitting Republican governor in Texas, but, but he's going to make a big fuss over this. So, I think governors take note that, uh, you know, that the public utility, basically your, your utility, you know, moving power, making power, moving power around is, is regulated by public utility commissions and the ISOs. 
the Public Utility Commission appointed by the governors, you can expect in this in this effort to to, to go and do more renewables, you can you can expect a fair amount of people hanging back just because it's a much more important priority to, to keep the grid up, especially when it's cold, not to have the grid get down. What does that represent in terms of owning stock in Antero or Southwestern or EQT or whatnot? I mean, it, it, it's a positive, of course. The troublesome thing is that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is saying, since gasoline prices are so high and because gas is high and heating oil is high and power rates are high and whatnot, why don't we suspend exports of gas? Or why don't we limit exports of gas? And uh, I think they may have the authority to do that without legislation. Uh, same thing for uh, exporting crude. I mean, we produce about 11 million barrels a day of crude, down from 13. And I think about two, two and a half million barrels a day are exported because uh, they're worth more on the, on the international market than they are consumption in the U.S. If the Biden administration starts doing that, I mean, it's just terrible, terrible uh, interference with market. But, you know, if they felt that there was some political advantage to doing it, they might do it. Well, that, if, they, if you if you own a, a company that's primarily producing natural gas, that's not going to be a good thing. On the other hand, you know, that the, the, the idea that we'll transition to solar and wind and batteries is really called into question, I think. It's not that those five days in, in Texas in February were caused when not blowing or being cloudy or anything, but the system that's been established in in the ISO, Texas is one of the states that is its own ISO, the ERCOT, interesting enough, Electric Retiability Council or something, the Reliability Council, I mean, it just fell apart. I mean, it just it just failed. Everything failed and turned Texas into, you know, in a cold spell into, you know, like third world living conditions. So, this is going to be something something to watch. The only other thing I'd add before we get into finishing up or commenting on software, the service, the SaaS companies, and the chip companies, the only other thing I'd add is that the U.S. Treasury market is not working the way it's supposed to work. There's a total of about $28 trillion of debt outstanding, and of course, four and a half or no, no, seven or eight is held by the uh, Federal Reserve. So, you know, say let's there's, I don't know, 20, 20 trillion out there that's not held by the Federal Reserve or in some, you know, Social Security account or something. It's it's not working too well. It, it, it's, it has a lot of volatility in it. It's not exactly clear to me where the final resting home of that 20 trillion of paper is. I fear that a lot of it and, and there have been some Federal Reserve studies on this, is held by investors, whether it be hedge funds or fixed income managers, where in order to get the yield up, since, you know, the 10-year bond's like 1.5%, in order to try to present like a 3 or 4% yield to your investors, you borrow in the repo market at, say, 25 or 30 basis points, and you invest in the 10-year market or five-year market to make extra yield, and you can do that like with 10 times leverage or whatnot, so you can present, you know, whoever's 
the beneficiary, pension funds or individual investors or what have you, with a you know a five or six percent yield. That is troublesome because if the source of the financing for that, the repo market, suddenly started to dry up, you'd have a certain amount of chaos and. This happened in March of 2000. Now, a lot of problems were happening in March of 2000, but it kind of threatens to occur. So treasury market participants have been sounding the alarm, and they meet with the New York Fed and whatnot. They have committees and whatnot. One of the theories is that the system, which is kind of a dealer system for clearing all this, ought to be replaced by a system run by the Federal Reserve. It doesn't look like it's the time to make a change like that, especially since the Biden administration, which, you know, okay, a lot of us, myself and a lot of us on this phone didn't didn't vote for him. The Biden administration on just about every single issue seems to get things wrong. I mean, it's not just Afghanistan. It's not just immigration on the infrastructure bill, which was a bit of an achievement. I mean, that should have been signed in August. Instead, they didn't, and they have a debt ceiling coming up. They have to do that. The Build Back Better plan, which is very important for progressive being in the Democratic Party, I mean, that's kind of dead on arrival almost, which is going to create more fissures within the Democratic Party. They should have appointed the Fed chairman, whether it's Powell or Blair Banners. It should have been done in August. I mean, they, it just seemed like they lacked confidence. And, you know, we got three more years of them. So in terms of managing your own affairs and establishing a cash reserve or waiting on a stock you want to own, you know, there's enough concerns here, whether it be a condition of the government bond market or the Biden administration just not being very confident and, and having screw-ups and delays and whatnot. Probably just better if you have your heart set on buying a stock and we're going to get into some stocks in a minute. Don't necessarily sell things that you're in because that so far has been the wrong answer. But certainly if you have liquidity and you've got your heart set on one of these companies that is really good and is clearly a good holding for a 10 or 15 year period, my very strong advice would be wait for a month or two and see what develops here because you might, in it, to the extent that some of those incompetence on the part of the Biden administration that starts to find its way into the capital markets, you may have an opportunity to buy that thing that you want to own for the next 10 years, you know, 20% down or something like that. And with that, I want to just make a commentary on, on I take it way more than 10 minutes, which I apologize, but software as a service, and we've gone through a lot of these. Mike, to his credit, has found a lot of these. I, I continue to look at these. Mostly I'm looking at these on the weekend because they're just in time during the week. And generally, in order to make sense out of them, you have to add back marketing expense and R&D expense. This is a very fundamental issue. And Mike knows this much, much better than I. But as I read these things, and the ones I've been focused on are the security ones, Sentinel and CrowdStrike, because I think that while you know industry ones make some sense, Certainly, uh, getting hacked and trying to protect the security of your system is, is, a, is a big issue. As I look at those, and they have like marketing expense and R&D, and what I'm concerned about, I mean, the theory is that 
as they grow, the marketing expense, R&D, as a percentage of revenues will go down. But suppose part of taking care of your customer here is incurring that marketing expense in R&D. So do you ever really get to significant cash flow as compared to a very good chip stock like NVIDIA or whatnot, which has had free cash flow forever? So with that, I just want to get a commentary from Mike on that issue. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I ultimately think that there are going to be winners and losers. And right now, the software industry in general has some fantastic tailwinds. When the tides change and things get more difficult, whether that is a broad-based economy issue or if it's a narrow regional or or industry-specific issue, we will see separation between the the good and the best. And what will happen is the companies that are spending a lot of money on sales and marketing and R&D will see their sales growth slow and they won't be recouping that gross margin in as short a period of time. So there's some of the metrics will start to tell us relatively soon who's what's working and what is not working. What, what we're essentially doing here is taking venture capital metrics and applying them to publicly traded companies. And, and Hunt brings up the, the right question is, you know, should a company that is large enough to be public still be treated and valued the same way a venture back company is? And it, it's, it's really the question mark is how much future growth is possible. And like I said, I think it's also really going to, start to separate some of the good ones from the bad ones. And that's very difficult to do as an individual investor without spending a lot of time and having a lot of deep knowledge for, on a particular industry. So in picking one of these, if, if you are running the portfolio, like we, we talk about this 10 to 12 stock portfolio, you want to be very careful about selecting one of these. And at current valuations, you, you especially want to tread lightly, I think. On the other hand, something that has really good cash margins, like an NVIDIA, like an ADM, is pretty vulnerable because they've gotten up so much in valuation. But with that as a caution, Mike's favorite chip stock, as you all know, is NVIDIA. Uh, NVIDIA has this project where they want to acquire ARM. And ARM is a company that was founded in the U.K., was owned in the UK and was acquired by SoftBank as part of kind of vision, you know, the vision fund that they did with the Saudis. It's under contract in the video. It's been under contract, I guess, for a year. Fair amount of regulator scrutiny in China, in Brussels for the European Union, and in this morning's paper, UK regulator, who where they take a special interest because this was a homegrown success tech company in, in the UK is basically putting them through a much longer process. Is NVIDIA's future depend on acquiring ARM? I don't think so, but it certainly is an awfully good match. I mean, a lot of mergers look like, you know, it'll be a challenge for the management to make them work together. ARM and NVIDIA seem to fit together like hand and glove. And here, here, you know, Mike, Mike knows this so much better than I do that I'm just going to turn the microphone over to Mike and he'll cover some of these issues. 
It, it's it, it's a valid point. I think that when this deal was first announced, there was a lot of people questioning whether it's totally necessary for NVIDIA to acquire ARM in order to realize its vision. And over time, the impact of being able to acquire ARM, the markets have kind of understand it a little better. So let me do my best to explain why it's not a big deal and why it is a big deal. So it's not a big deal if they're not able to acquire ARM because they can always partner with ARM and they have done that and they can license technology from ARM to create their own CPUs. And specifically that goes back to the data center story. They acquired a company called Mellanox, which enables them to uh, expand in the data center through a product called DPUs, data processing units. And the third leg of that stool, where one leg is GPUs, their bread and butter. The second leg is DPUs, which they got through Mount Mellanox. The third would be the CPU. They have announced plans to release a server CPU chip that's based on ARM technology. They announced those plans at the end of last year, if I remember right, maybe earlier this year. The... That is not hindered. Those plans are not hindered by an ARM acquisition not going through. I think what NVIDIA sees is the, the future and why, why ARM is such a big opportunity is that the artificial intelligence technologies that are being propagated throughout every major data center right now, that technology is eventually going to work its way into phones and cameras and every single what we refer to as edge computing devices there it's your microwave it's your tv it's your 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 oven and stove and security camera all of those things uh, use relatively inexpensive chips produced on licensed technologies where the, the licensing fee is relatively low in order to get some of nvidia's technology into the hands of a broader market they can utilize ARM's existing licensing platform in order to drive additional revenues through a channel that's just not possible with their existing setup. Now, they could go through the process of developing their own licensing technologies, but when everyone else is already using ARM, I think it makes more sense to acquire them. So so with, with that, I, I think that NVIDIA is not ruined if they don't get the, this deal done, but it, it is a relatively clear picture to me that the future of ARM with NVIDIA is much brighter, both for ARM and for NVIDIA. And remember that these companies have intellectual property. They design chips. It's the Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung that make them. And the largest U.S. company in chips, not by market value anymore, because NVIDIA is much more valuable. Uh, Intel has announced that in addition to making chips for their own design, they also they are going to compete with Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung in terms of making chips uh, that other people design, such as NVIDIA, such as Qualcomm, utilize you know some of the ARM license the technology that's licensed. We certainly talked about Intel when we were talking about NVIDIA and ADM and, and Taiwan Semiconductor. But just in the remaining bit of time left, Intel has a new CEO. Intel is 
trying to change its stripes and trying to perform. When you make these chips, you know, you, you can, you know, you've got to have the error percentage below. Otherwise, your costs get away from you. And, you know, it's a challenging thing to do. Enormously capital intensive. If any of you followed uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, I mean, I think their capital spending for the coming year is something like $20 billion or whatnot, putting an enormous amount into uh, new capacity to make thinner chips, faster chips, the kinds of chips that Apple needs or NVIDIA needs or Qualcomm licenses. I know Michael has warned us that don't think about buying Intel because somehow they'll be able to come around. It's kind of a, you know, when when something is not working in, in terms of intellectual property, turning that around is really difficult to do. But with that, with the remaining couple of minutes, uh, turn it back over to Michael. Sure. So Intel, I think, is something that we need to continue to watch. Today, in its current form, if you've ever done any work with a government agency, they will tell you that making decisions is like the equivalent of trying to turn a container ship. It's a very long and arduous process. Intel reinventing itself is going to be a, a long and painful process. I think that it can be done, but I don't think that the current valuation represents a good entry point given the amount of data we have about what their capabilities will be in the future. I also don't think that the strategy of going to build new old old technology fabs is a good strategy either. I do think that there is a lot of pressure from governments both in the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere in Japan too, to get manufacturing capacity and semiconductor talent out of Taiwan, mainly because of it becoming such a conflict area. So there are a lot of tailwinds that may help Intel over the medium term here. I just don't think today they have what it takes in order to do that. It doesn't mean that they won't be there in the future. So I think as we continue to follow the chip uh, industry, and we will do that because I think it's a fundamental, you can call it a pick and shovel of technology, we will keep Intel on our radar. So so I think I think we'll have more to talk about them in the future. But as of today, I, they're in a hard spot. Mike, of course, there's been plenty of publicity about China's military uh, flying planes inside of Taiwan's airspace. Mike and I were talking about this earlier, and, and uh, you know, it, it, clearly it's a high priority for the Chinese government to uh, have Taiwan be uh, like Hong Kong. And uh, I've always thought that if that happens, it's more likely to happen based on a political decision within Taiwan not with any kind of military action. But Mike made a really interesting comment uh, when we are discussing this uh, earlier today. He said, think of Apple, think of Foxconn, which is also a, a Taiwanese company that does uh, most of Apple's manufacturing in China. I, I've avoided owning Apple stock because under the theory that China could somehow take advantage. But there's kind of a 
mutual dependency there because I believe Foxconn is the largest employer in China, employs more people. I mean, it's kind of like their Walmart. I think Walmart has more employees in our country than any other company. And so, uh, it, you know, I think if somehow Taiwan were more like Hong Kong, would that make Taiwan Semiconductor less valuable than it is now? Uh, certainly, the Chinese government has moved against Alibaba, you know, canceled the public offering of Alipay, caused Tencent, you know, some considerable decline in value because of a campaign saying Chinese teenagers aren't allowed to spend more than two hours playing uh, computer games, which is important business for Tencent. All that has happened, but you know, Taiwan Semiconductor is much more strategic. So I'm not advocating owning it. I know Mike from time to time, or maybe now owns Taiwan Semiconductor, but a NVIDIA or an ADM or ARM on their licenses, you know, is very dependent on their being made somewhere. And, you know, the principal place they're made is Taiwan Semiconductor or Samsung. So it is a risk, I think, with NVIDIA, but hopefully hopefully a manageable risk. With that, we're over. Be safe and be well, everyone, and we'll be on again next week at this time. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Thank you.